We are going to be in Matthew chapter 2 today, so Aaron Powell read up to that passage, and we see a little bit about Joseph, the back story for Joseph, and how his life unfolded. And Luke gives us more of an insight into the life of Mary, okay, and how her life was kind of turned upside down with the angel visiting her and saying, hey, you are going to be with child, all right? And... Uh, of the Messiah. So last Sunday, though, we talked about um, the incarnation, so Jesus becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us. That was in the Gospel of John. And so we, we looked at that, okay, and how um, him becoming human, it meant that he could live amongst us um, I, so that we could identify with him and him with us. And in doing so, we were able to uh, see God's grace and truth in human form, amen? And so we talked about that. Uh, Matthew's gospel, on the other hand, includes the lineage of Christ through um, Abraham, okay? And then if you look at Luke's gospel, he also includes a lineage, but I believe that is through Adam, all right? So uh, Matthew really is geared to a Jewish population. John was to the Greeks, and so as you look at these authors of the gospels, they each had their own target audience, okay? Uh, People that they were trying to reach. And so Matthew is more to the Jewish population. And uh, so that comes out, that's why he would trace the lineage through Abraham, because Abraham was the father of the the Jews, right? Yeah. All right. And so um, we we see some of these things in the Gospel of Matthew. We see the lineage. We see Joseph, uh, you know, he is all excited to be married to Mary, and then all of a sudden he, he finds out she is with child. They haven't been officially married yet, and so the penalty for that was that she could be tried um, for adultery, and she could be uh, she could have been killed, she could have been stoned. Um, Joseph was going to do the kind thing, and he was going to secretly kind of divorce her, all right, and send her away. But then the angel comes and speaks to him in a dream vision, and he uh, takes her as his wife. And they go through this journey together, all right? And so this morning I want to focus on Matthew's account, especially of what we call the Magi, okay? And you may call them the wise men, but we're going to call them the Magi this morning um, because I I think sometimes we we give labels um, such as the wise men, and um, I think we're just going to go with what Scripture says. They were Magi. So that really comes from the Greek word Magi, okay? So... um, the Magi. So we're going to talk a little more about who they were. But they were an outside witness confirming that this newborn baby was the Messiah. And it's really a cool story because in all, in all reality, they would have been totally oblivious to this baby being born in Bethlehem. They weren't Jewish. They weren't God-fearers. They weren't even in the location of Bethlehem. But God had them part of this story. And as part of a witness that Jesus was the Son of God. So, um, I think it is a cool story how God is working behind the scenes and how we can uh, see the heart of God through this. So, we're going to begin in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 2. But before we do, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the living word of God that is able to speak into our hearts and our lives. And Lord, we just ask for your help this morning, for your Holy Spirit to make it come alive to us to change, transform us, guide and direct us, Lord. Speak to us, I pray. We ask this in your name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Verses 1 and 2. 
After Jesus had been born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We have saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. All right? And so Jesus is born in Bethlehem. If you go into Luke's gospel, you'll find out that there's a little bit more that, that leads up to this account in Matthew. Because Mary and Joseph live where? Nazareth, right? And so Chris is going to put up a map there, and you can kind of see the distance there that is there. They live in Nazareth, and due to the census, they make this trip down all the way. So the Sea of Galilee is up in the north there. You've got the Dead Sea in the south, and they make this trip. It doesn't look very long there, right? It looks like maybe, I don't know, a couple feet there, right? But if you were to walk that in Israel, that would be about um, 65 miles. It's a four- to five-day walk. Okay, now put on to that that you are eight, nine months pregnant. Yeah, no wonder Jesus was born in Bethlehem, all right, right? <laughs> it's just kind of like, you know, when they got there, it was time to, for the baby to be born, right? And so they make their way down from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why? Why did they decide to make this trip when she is nine months pregnant? Because of a census that was ordered by Caesar Augustus, yes. And so they make their way. Everybody had to go back to their hometown, their origin, and for the census to be taken by the Roman world. Because that was part of Israel's um, situation at that time. They were under Roman rule, right? They were able, there were some freedoms there, but still they were under Roman occupation. All right? And so it says that they went up to Bethlehem. Now, when we usually go south, we say we're going down south. So why in the world does he say they're going south, right? They're going south. Why did they say they went up to Bethlehem? Why? Elevation. Yeah. So Jerusalem and Bethlehem would be up in elevation. So they would say we're going up to Jerusalem or up to Bethlehem. Now, Jerusalem and Bethlehem were fairly close. They were only six miles apart. Bethlehem is just six miles south of Jerusalem, so that's the Lincoln, and Bethlehem would be the Crete, okay? All right? You kind of following along here? All right. And so they went up there and uh, made that journey there. So uh, once they reach Bethlehem, Jesus is born in a stable. So that's what Luke records, right? He is born in the stable, and who shows up that night? The shepherds. The shepherds, somebody said it, I don't know who it was, but the shepherds show up, right? Because they have this angelic host that appears to them out in the fields. They go and they see the Savior that had been born, and they find the child wrapped in the manger and swaddling clothes, right? Okay, so it's right the night shortly after Jesus is born that night. But the Magi probably, you know, we always include it as it all happened all at once, right? But the Magi most likely came upon the scene months later, okay? But Mary and Joseph still are in Bethlehem. They're still living there, probably because they didn't want to travel with the child or for whatever reason, but it's probably months later because the Magi, they begin their journey once the Savior is born, once the star appears, right? We've seen His star in the east and we've come to worship Him. All right, so Magi literally means... Um, yeah, it's the Greek word there. So some words, some translations go with magi, other go with wise men. But they were people that um, studied the starry sky. So usually we call them what? 
astrologers, right? And sometimes there's conflict between astrology and Christianity because sometimes in astrology, they, you, that's where horoscopes and some of those things come from, right? And we wouldn't agree with some of those things, right? But there's nothing wrong with studying the star. I love looking up at night and seeing the stars in the sky, right? beautiful. And that's one of the things you get to enjoy being part of the Midwest. You don't have all that, what they call light pollution and all those things. You can look up and you, and you can see uh, the stars and they're beautiful. Um, one of our kids is professors from, from college and he's also a legal consultant for the Assemblies of God. But he has this massively expensive telescope and you know, kind of like one of a kind, that, and that's what he does. He, he loves to look up there and, and study all that. So there's nothing wrong with studying the stars, but that's who they probably were, for lack of a better term. They were astrologers. They were people that had studied the stars, and they noticed that the star had risen, and they put it together that a king had been born. And so they began on a journey. And so um, we don't know exactly where these men were from. They were from the east. And so Chris is going to put up another map just so you kind of get an idea. Um, what most scholars believe is that they probably came from Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, all right? And so that would be kind of in that area of Susa. But you see the, um, the Gulf of Arabia, isn't that there, right? Right there. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of tensions, especially with um, America and stuff, Iraq and Iran and all those good things. So that's, but these are possible places where they came from, all right? Um, But most sources say from Babylon. We know that there was astrology was kind of a thing back then. But what does that tell us? These people were not God-fearers. They didn't have the Holy Scriptures, what there was available at that time of the Old Testament. They didn't have any of that. And yet they, they find themselves at the birth of Jesus shortly after, and they're there to worship Him. Isn't that kind of cool? So they were probably wealthy intellectuals, astrologers, in search of the next great king. And they wanted to worship and celebrate His birth. We've come, we've seen a star, and we've come to worship Him. So the first principle, if you're taking notes there, and they're also in the loop bulletin there, um, but you can uh, take notes, is that seekers of truth can come from unlikely places. And a, as a pastor, that's one of the things that I just, I sometimes, I marvel at that because um, of the sovereignty of God, for lack of a better term. It's just that how some people find their way to the foot of the cross and make their life right with Christ and others don't. And it's seen in the life of Jesus too. Why was the thief on the cross There's two thieves there. One found his way to paradise with Christ and one didn't, right? Very unlikely, right? Very unlikely that that person would make it to heaven and be with God, but they did. That is the sovereignty of God, and I... We cannot predict it. We cannot understand it. Some people are raised in the church, and they, 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 never, they never darken the door of the church again, and they fall away from God. And then there's others that have never been raised in church. They don't know anything about God, and they, become, they follow, find Him, right? Because God finds them. That is the sovereignty of God. Um, he is pursuing us more than we, I think we sometimes realize. Um, these people were unlikely choices, these, these magi. And um, I've just learned that people, God calls people from all walks of life, ethnicities, social classes, rich, poor, um, 
They made this long journey. And so what we know is that that journey that uh, we showed up there could have possibly been an 800-mile journey, which could have taken, um, in the book of um, some of the minor prophets there, when they made that journey, because Nebuchadnezzar came from Babylon and took him captive, it took him four months to make that journey. So now these wise men, these magi, probably were able to make it a little bit quicker, okay, because they were fewer in number. Uh, we don't know how many they were, but there was three gifts. Everybody assumes three, but there was probably a caravan of people that came to worship him. But it could have easily taken them three, four months to make that journey to where they would see this newborn child. Amen? All right. Seekers of truth come from unlikely places. And so um, I, I just some of the people that are involved in the, the birth of Jesus, so you have the Magi, right? And then you have the shepherds. They were Jewish people. Okay? They were from the tribe of, oh, they were part of Israel because they were Jewish, but were they part of the low social class or the high? Low. They were just kind of like low. Right? When they stepped in, everybody wanted to go the other way because they'd been working with sheep, right? And they hadn't had a bath in who knows how long, right? But they weren't considered part of the high social class. Yet they are they're key people in the birth of Jesus. I think that communicates... That God loves all people, doesn't it? Mary and Joseph had a good lineage, and they definitely had a good heart. There was something in their heart that maybe nobody else saw, but God saw. And he says, you know what? I, I have such high esteem of them that I'm going to entrust my son into their hands. Isn't that just powerful to think that God would look at you and say, you know what? I entrust you with my son. Wow. Pretty powerful. Good lineage, but I don't think from the outside world that people really knew who Mary and Joseph were. And so God calls people from all walks of life, and and in God's sovereignty, they find their way to Him. Um, And you read through the Gospels, you read through the New Testament, you just see that repeated over and over again. Whether it's the woman at the well, whether it's Nicodemus, whether it's um, Zacchaeus, we talked about some of those last week. Unlikely people find their way to God. Regardless of gender, ethnicity, wealth, authority, their past, God's unconditional love is reaching out to people. Amen? Let's look at verses 3 through 6. It says, Then the king, Herod, when he heard this, so he hears that these guys, they're in town, and I'm, I'm sure when these guys came into town with their camels and their wealth, it's kind of like Jerusalem was buzzing, all right? It's kind of like, okay, what's up? Facebook is lit up, all right? I mean, it's just, I mean, it, it, stuff's happening because these, they're just kind of like, these people, you, they know they're not from that area. I mean, Jerusalem is buzzing, all right? And then they get their way to Herod because they're under that Roman domination, all right? And the king hears of this. He is what? He's disturbed, right? Why? He's the king. I don't want no little king growing up and taking my place, right? And all Jerusalem with them because they're kind of concerned about what Herod would do if, in light of this. Herod did not have a good reputation. And we read, if you read on in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, they have to escape to Egypt, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, because Herod then begins to kill all the boys two years uh, old and younger in Bethlehem. Very tragic. But we see what Herod was capable of. And so Jerusalem, rightfully so, had... Uh, a good reason to be concerned, all right? And so um, when they called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asked, where is the Messiah to be born? 
In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, they knew it, they understood from the Scripture, for this is what the prophet was written, the prophet Micah. It's found in Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd for my people Israel. All right. So what do we see here? The stir of the wise men of the Magi creates quite a stir. Micah records it. You know, the town of Bethlehem in Judea, there's two of them, so you have to say of Judea or Judah, uh, was six miles south of Jerusalem. So it was on this range, uh, this ridge, and it was fertile valleys below. So it was a very fertile place. But it has kind of a rich heritage. Um, It would be where Rachel, who was the wife of Jacob, right? They're going through there and traveling, and Rachel dies. You remember, Rachel was the one that Jacob was willing to work seven years for. He just thought she was this redhead that he thought was just really pretty. And uh, he works seven years, and instead of getting Rachel, he gets, he gets Leah, right? Um, and so anyway, there's, he marries both of them. Um, but Rachel dies after giving birth to Benjamin, all right? She dies, and she is buried in Bethlehem. All right, and then we read on that um, Bethlehem would be where Ruth, right? Ruth is a Moabite, and um, some of Naomi's family moves out to Moab because of famine, right? So they go to Moab to escape the famine. Uh, Naomi's husband dies. Her two sons die, and both of her sons have been married, and so she sends the sister-in-laws away the daughter-in-law's away, but Ruth says, you know what? Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And so Ruth comes back with Naomi, and they come back to the town of Bethlehem. That was her hometown. The famine had subsided, but now you have two widows in a land that did not have Social Security. The best thing that they had is that they would work the edge of the fields and hope that somebody would have mercy and compassion upon them. And they found compassion by one of Naomi's relatives, and his name was... Boaz, and he becomes a kinsman redeemer for Ruth, right? Now, if you turn back in your Bible, chapter 1 of Matthew, and you go to um, verse 5, it says, Salmon was the father of Boaz. This is the lineage of Christ here. Whose mother was who? Rahab. Who's Rahab? Remember, she was the prostitute from uh, Jericho, right? Wow. And Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. There you go. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. So now we see in Bethlehem, that is where Ruth would be from, and then her lineage, but then also that would be the hometown for King David, right? Right? It was in Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem has this rich heritage, and it is prophesied by Micah that it would be in Bethlehem that the Savior would be born, the Messiah. You know, Bethlehem wasn't anything special. Um, it really wasn't. But that's where God says, you know what? My, my son is going to be born. And so the second principle is a real spiritual one, but great things come from small places, folks. And I think that's more for us that sometimes we have to realize that something starts small before they get big. We always want the big thing, right? Right? 
You know, you look at Amazon, it's like two, $3,000 a share now. But, it, you know, it's Amazon started, and it controls so much, it's almost scary. It really is. But Amazon started out in a, bi- in a garage, right? Yeah. A lot of great businesses started off in a garage, or they just had those small beginnings. You know, you drive through the rural places of, of the Midwest, right, even through Nebraska, and you'll see a sign up and said, this is the hometown for such and such, right? So Johnny Carson was born where? Norfolk, Nebraska. Yeah. I don't know. How many knew that? Okay. All right. Larry the Cable Guy, that's an easy one. Where? Pawnee City. Pawnee City. I've never been to Pawnee City. I know it exists. Small town though, right? Yeah. Lawrence Welk. This is a tougher one. Phil might know this one. Lawrence Welk. Where is he from? North Dakota, yep. Yeah, he's from North Dakota. Strasburg, North Dakota. That's another town that's just a small, dinky town, but Lawrence Welk, you know, some of you might have to go back a little bit, but he had, uh, he had quite the show there for many, many years. And then you have Jesus of Bethlehem. And maybe you know some others, right? Um, small towns don't define you. Um, small towns, small beginnings are important. Zechariah chapter 4, 6 through 10 in the Old Testament. This goes back to when Israel is being rebuilt. They, they were taken um, into exile under King Nebuchadnezzar. Israel is really wiped out and destroyed, and they're taken to Babylon, that 800-mile journey, All right, and they're there for 70 years. And then God says, I'm going to bring you back. He's prophesied in Jeremiah. He brings them back, but now they have to rebuild. And so Zerubbabel, okay, and I want you to be able to pronounce that before you can leave. All right, Zerubbabel uh, would be the one that God would say, hey, I want you to rebuild the temple. And so he starts rebuilding, he gets the foundation laid, and then they get opposition, and the building is stopped. It just stopped. Nothing happens for years. And then all of a sudden, God changes the favor, and they begin to rebuild. But it seemed like an insurmountable thing. Solomon's temple was beautiful, and this was not going to be Solomon's temple. But even just to build... Even a portion of what was there seemed insurmountable. They didn't have the people. They didn't have the, the money or the passion to really get this done. But God said to Zechariah, we can maybe quote this a lot, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mountain, before Zerubbabel? You'll become level ground. And um, when they bring out the capstone to the shouts of God, bless it, God, bless it. Then the Lord came to me, says, The hands of Zerubbabel that have laid the foundation of this temple, his hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Verse 10, Who dares to despise the day of small beginnings? Since the seven eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth and rejoice. You know, God's word to Zerubbabel is, Don't despise the day of small beginnings. Everything begins small, Right? And sometimes we look at people and we see the, their fame or we see their wealth, we see their popularity, we see their accomplishments, their success, and we think it happens, boom, overnight, right? And uh, usually it happens. There's a lot that happens bef- behind the scenes before they get to that point. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. And realize that, you know what, Jesus came from Bethlehem, folks. And a lot of great things come out of small places. And so if that's where you feel like you're in a small place, 
Crete, Nebraska, or you, nobody knows who you are, right? God does. Don't despise the small things. Amen? And I just think of in our church in the last 16 years, you know, we've sent out one missionary to India. I don't know if you remember, that was in those early days. She was a Doan student, attended our church, and then she was with uh, YWAM, I believe. And she's in, uh, her and her husband, she got married, and now they're uh, missionaries in India. Um, one of our early youth pastors, kids pastors, uh, left here and did Youth for Christ in Hastings, did a great job, and now is a church, planted a church there in Hastings. Uh, one of our youth that came out of this church is uh, working for Youth for Christ and coordinating it now in Hastings. I don't know who her, her name is, Chris, but uh, it is Chris and Mary Ellen's daughter. Uh, she's doing that. Uh, we have one of our associate pastors that was a kid's pastor. He's now at a large church in Arizona. It's just kind of weird. He texted me this week and he goes, I just want to thank you for the influence that you had in my life. Um, pastor Ryan. Um, you know, um, sm- small things to God aren't a thing. And so don't despise them. Realize that God can bring some pretty great things out of small places and small towns. Amen? Verse 7. Verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. So this is kind of where we put together that when the star appeared is when Christ was born. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may too go worship him. Yeah. And after they'd heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they'd seen, it rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. So this, they probably were not in the manger at this time, but they were in some kind of house. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. And when they'd opened their treasures and then presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and having been warned in a dream they, um, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. You know, deceptively, Herod gives his blessing for the Magi to search for the Messiah. And while claiming he wanted to worship the newborn king, he secretly wanted to end his life, right? And as the Magi left Jerusalem, the star led them to Bethlehem to where baby Jesus was at. Um, there really is no human explanation for the star. Some have said, well, it was Halley's Comet or something like that, but it doesn't line up with the time. Jesus was born probably about um, 2 to 4 B.C., all right, uh, is when they really think that happened. So there really isn't hum- any human explanation for the star other than it, it was a supernatural event that God caused to happen. Um, and so we know that Jesus was probably a couple months old, maybe even a year old, uh, until those magi um, came onto the scene. Um, the magi were not knowledgeable of the Scriptures or even of God, but they had a pure heart that wanted to come and worship Jesus the Messiah. Amen? And so they presented Him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That kind of looked up. It's kind of like curious, you know, an ounce of gold is what, over $2,000, right? Um, quite a bit of money. So how much were these gifts worth? 
And so I did a little bit of research. You know, these are all estimates. We don't know how much that was there. But actually, frankincense and myrrh were worth more than the gold was back in that day. Okay? Just uh, uh, for reference there. But estimates put that, that the gifts could easily have been 2 to $3 million, if not up to $4 million. So these men had some wealth. They had some, they had some earthly possessions. And this is the gift that they gave to the king, to Jesus. Isn't that incredible? You know, that they made that long journey, that they show up. And what, why? Why? Well, you know, it really was an act of worship on their part. But think about Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. All of a sudden, now the Magi leave, and what happens? Herod finds out about it, and he's furious and upset. And he gives the edict to do what? to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. And so Mary and Joseph, Joseph's warmed in a dream. They get their what possessions they have, and they head to where? Egypt. And so Chris has a map of that. But what do you think that they used for provisions along that journey, that long journey? Do you think they possibly used some of that gold, that frankincense and myrrh, that God and his provision was providing for them so that they wouldn't be in poverty as they made their way to Egypt. And then soon later, they would move back to Nazareth again. I, you know, that, that's not included in here, but I, I look at that and I think, you know what, maybe God was just giving them a little extra savings there so that they could make the journey and not be des- desolate, right? Right? And he was providing for them. So maybe there was a real practical reason for them and their gifts as well. But they give their gifts. The third principle that I just wanted to bring out is that God reveals himself to those who have a pure heart. Herod obviously did not. And God hid his birth from him. And he even hides it from a lot of the religious people. They know he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but they weren't cued in. But if you keep on reading in the, in the gospel of Luke, you'll find out there was an Anna. All right, I don't know if Anna's here or if she's in the nursery, but I, I would, wouldn't be surprised if her, she's named after this character in Scripture, um, Anna. And then you have Simeon. And they were people that were, came to the temple day in and day out, and they would pray and they would seek God. And God had spoken to them, and especially to Simeon. He says, I'm not going to let you die until you have seen the Messiah. And all of a sudden, one day, it happened. God spoke to him and said, he's here. And he goes and he prays over Mary and Joseph and has a blessing over them and prophesies over them. He had a pure heart. And Anna as well, she comes and she finds him. God speaks to her and she prophesies and prays over them. God reveals himself to those that have a pure heart and that seek after him. Jesus would later say in Matthew's gospel, Chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And there again, I, I just am kind of marveled at the Magi. There again, I, we don't know who they were. All we know is they probably did not have a great biblical understanding of who God was. Um, they came from a heathen nation. And they maybe even have practices of worshiping or looking at the stars that maybe we would have issues with. 
And yet they're part of God's plan and his story. And they came to worship and to give Jesus glory, worship, and honor. Amen? And it reminds us that even for us to be thankful for what God has done and to worship him. I'm going to have the worship team come. The Magi and the town of Bethlehem were unlikely to be included in the birth of Jesus. If you were making a movie, you probably would not have included Bethlehem, and you probably wouldn't include Magi, although they do make a pretty good story, don't they? Right? But they were unlikely in a lot of ways. But their inclusion in the birth of Jesus, I believe, communicates the heart of God. It communicates that God is really inclusive. Right? That's a big that's kind of a buzzword right now, inclusive, right? But it really does mean that God is inclusive and that people from all walks of life were were included in his birth and um, him coming to earth. Whether it's the shepherds, the magi, Mary and Joseph, Anna and Simeon, you have all these different people that were part of the birth of Jesus. And it communicates that God does not despise small things or small places or small beginnings. In fact, in a lot of ways, that's where he receives his glory and his honor. And lastly, God reveals himself to those that have a pure heart. And sometimes maybe you think, oh, I don't know. If you've seen my heart, you wouldn't. I mean, ultimately, nobody has a totally pure heart. But I believe these guys did. The Magi did. They wanted to worship the king, whatever that meant. Amen? And so they invested their time, they invested their wealth, and their effort to find that king. That's an incredible story. It's an incredible story. You know, there's a saying, wise men still seek him, right? That's true. Would you stand this morning? I'm going to lead us in a prayer of salvation. I do this I try to do it every Sunday just because some of you need it. No. But I don't know if that's your first time. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're even one of those unlikely people. Why are you here? Why are you even hearing this message? It's because God is seeking you with His love and His compassion. And He wants you to know the gift of eternal life and to know that your sins are forgiven and that He is your Lord and your Savior. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer and if you mean that with your heart this morning, there's nothing magical about the prayer. We're just praying a prayer of salvation, saying, God, come into my heart. So let's just pray that together this morning as a body of Christ, saying, Dear God, thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. Be my Lord and my Savior and guide me in the path of eternal life. Hallelujah. Father, grace us with your presence here this morning. And just as we end with worship, Lord God, may we um, think of your goodness and may we worship you, Lord God. I I think, you know what, if, if, if these magi who did not know of all the things that God would do and was going to do through the Messiah. And if they didn't know what it meant to have their sins forgiven, if they could worship you in such a fashion. And Lord God, what, 
What does that mean for us, Lord? I mean, we may not have two, three million dollars in the bank that we can bring a gift to worship you. And I don't think that's what you require. You call us in the view of God's mercies in Romans 12. Let us offer our lives as a living sacrifice to you, for this is your spiritual act of worship. God wants us to live our life for him in a way that glorifies him and honors him. And so... Amen. Lord, this morning, as we uh, go into this Christmas season, Lord God, and basically almost two weeks left, a little under, prepare our hearts. Let it not just be a holiday uh, on the calendar, but Lord, may it also may it be a time that we do some reflection, we do some just some soul searching, and to really uh, maybe even prioritize things in our life. But above all, Lord God, that our lives can be worshipped to you, Lord God. Not just our singing, but our every minute of our life, that it can bring you glory and honor to live that life as an offering to you, Lord God. We give you the thanks, we give you the praise, we ask in the precious and the wonderful name of Jesus. And everybody said, hey, God bless this morning. If you did pray that prayer for the first time, would you find me this morning? And... Uh, just love to pray with you and help you on your journey. So God bless you. Greet each other as you go. God bless you.